0: Parthaya Pratibodhitam Bhagavatam Narayana Swayam Vyasena Gratitam Madhyemahabharatam Advaitha Vrta Varshinim Bhagavatim Ashtadashadhyayinim Ambatvamanusandhadhami-bhagavat-gīte-bhavadveshnim Yam brahma-varunendra-rudra-marutah Stunvanti-divyaishtavaihi Vedai-sangapadakramo-panishadaihi Gayanti yamsamagaha Dhyana vasthida tadgatena manasa Pashyanti yanyoginaha Yasyantanna vidusura suragaha Devayatasmain namaha In the verse, verses 52 and 53 of the second chapter. Concluding the chapter, discussion on the Karma Yoga. Lord says here, When it is that this knowledge will be gained as a result of Karma Yoga? In verse 52 it was said, <coughs> The first step is the purification of the mind. And then second step is the knowledge and the abidance in the knowledge. So what is, the, uh, what is the landmark, let us say, or what's the criterion by which we can judge whether or not this Karma Yoga is yielding its results? Then this is what is said by Lord Krishna, so how do we know? As some people ask, how do I know whether I am making progress or not, or whether the Karma Yoga is yielding its results, or how, how do I judge that? So the verse 52 said, Yadate Mohakalilam Buddhir Viritashadi Tadagantasinirvedam Shrota Vyasya Shrotaschya. <coughs> Yadate Buddhi Vanya Buddhi or mind Mohakalilam Virita Rishadi This Kalilam Kalil means turbidity like the mind has become as though turbid, has become polluted. With moha, meaning delusion, or aviveka, non-discrimination. Moha means aviveka. What we call moha, delusion, is aviveka. Viveka is discrimination. Aviveka is opposite of discrimination, or lack of discrimination here. Atma, anatma, uh, atma, anatma, aviveka. When one is not able to discriminate between the self and the non-self, that is called moha. Also there is another discrimination that when one is not able to recognize between what is the real source of happiness and what is not, and therefore usually the mind thinks that the source of happiness is or the happiness arises from the various objects of the world because that is what our experience seems to indicate. And that's the reason why mind naturally goes out into the objects. Mind is extrovert meaning seeking happiness or fulfillment from the objects. So this is what Moha or the delusion does, that it constantly takes the mind away from myself and into the various objects. So because the false estimate that we have about the worth of these objects, the objects are given much more worth than what they possess. Well, the world objects are, but they have a certain degree of reality. Which degree of reality is what we call Mithya. They are all perceptible, we all experience them. But then what is the degree of reality? is what we call me meaning. they are not real. They do not enjoy what we call an independent reality. And therefore also the happiness that seems to arise from the objects is not really the happiness that is generated from the objects, because they do not enjoy an independent reality. The real happiness only comes from the self, but it appears as though the happiness is coming from the objects when we experience the objects. So this moha or this delusion that happiness is something away from me, that happiness is in the objects, which conclusion on my part makes my mind run, run towards the objects again and again. And therefore it gets deviated from itself. When buddhi, he, vyati when your mind will be able to cross this turbidity caused by the delusion. meaning. When the mind will not anymore run away into the object seeking its fulfillment. That means when the mind will become abiding. To the extent that the mind discovers a happiness within itself, to that extent its need for going out of the objects is less. And thus says, This, this turbidity or the delusion on account of which the mind is made again and again made to run into the objects and it is that extrovertedness of the mind which really is an obstacle in recognizing the true nature of the self. If the mind abides into itself then I will be able to recognize what the nature of the self is. But when the mind always abides or or is always centered or focused on the non-self then that very focusing or extrovertedness deprives me from recognizing the true nature of the self. <clears throat> when this moha or the delusion will essentially go this is called the purification of the mind that that extrovertedness of the mind is slowly and slowly reduced and mind becomes more and more abiding centered on itself meaning and when can it happen? only when the mind discovers a happiness from within oneself this karma yoga the yoga of offering, of performing action in the spirit of offering. So as I discover the joy of offering, usually the joy is discovered when I get something. That's our usual experience, that I am happy when I get something. And that only seems to confirm my present conclusion that the happiness is somewhere there which is coming to me. But as I discover the joy of offering or giving, and still when I am happy, then I see the fact that the joy is something that is arising from myself and not coming from without. Suppose somebody gives you hundred dollars and you are happy then you know that happiness has arisen from hundred dollars that you gain. But suppose you give hundred dollars to someone and you feel happy then you know that the source of happiness is within yourself. And this is what Karma Yoga does. As we have discussed earlier when I perform the action in the spirit of offering and when I am I see the result also as something that is presented to me or given to me by Lord. And thus I am able to accept pleasant and unpleasant situations as they arise, as as prasada or as grace of God. Then the reaction that constantly arises from within, when things are not agreeable to me, when the result is not in keeping with my expectation, then the result that arises, the, the reaction that normally arises, reaction of a sense of failure, of frustration. All in the situation is not agreeable, conducive, then a resentment, an anger and protest and complain and blame etc. that normally arise. All of these things slowly, slowly start subsiding. It's a whole attitude towards life. Understanding karma yoga, it is not karma or the action that is important, it is the attitude that is important. And essentially, it is the attitude that whatever there is, is God. What I am doing, what I'm, when I am acting or performing action, it is done for God, and when I receive the result, it comes from God, and it is this attitude, which will enable me to see God. In the beginning, I accept. <coughs> it is not yet become my knowledge that whatever there is is God, but I accept it as a premise, and with that attitude, when I I uh, respond to everything, so slowly and slowly, I discover the fact that is involved in that attitude and thus this attitude becomes slowly and slowly natural to me. nirvedam shrodavyasya At that time Lord Krishna says nirvedam gantasi then you will find nirvedam meaning a dispassion. <coughs> dispassion means a freedom. The, what is meant by vairagya or dispassion is freedom. Freedom from the Dependence upon the objects. Freedom from need to seek object, happiness from the objects. So what you call vairagya or dispassion is really nothing but freedom. And as the mind becomes free, it experiences that happiness. Because whenever we experience happiness, it is really the experience of freedom. As we have said earlier, that when my mind becomes free from desire or demand or reaction, Then it enjoys a tranquility, and that is what we call happiness. So any moment I enjoy happiness, it is really nothing but freedom. And thus the mind will keep on discovering a freedom from the dependence upon the objects for the happiness. It is not that I become indifferent to the objects, or there is a resentment for the objects, or aversion for the objects. That is not what we call vairagya or dispassion. I just become free from dependence upon the objects. That's what is called freedom from attachment. Attachment is when I am dependent upon something. And thus, mind becomes free from raga and dvesha, attachment and aversion. It is attachment, aversion, raga, dveshas that, that are really the obstacle to the knowledge of myself. And to that, as that obstacle goes, I discover a freedom or a happiness which is the nature of myself. Therefore, vairāgya meaning freedom. Freedom means happiness. <coughs> Shrutavyasyya, shrutasyache. Shrutavyya, shuru means to hear. Shrutavyya, that which is to be heard. Shruta, that which is heard. Meaning you will discover a freedom from what is already heard or what is yet to be heard. This is in context of the Vedas because Veda is called shruti. And so Vedas describe a number of rituals and all these rituals offer you a variety of end results. So what is meant by Shruta is all the various things that you have heard so far, the, the various results and the, uh, um, the, the description of things such as he- Svarga, heavens, etc. which you have heard which normally fascinate you, you will become free from all those fascinations. From the things that you have achieved so far and the things that are yet to be achieved. Meaning you will become free from fascination or attachment for things that are or that will come in future. <coughs> in short, Karma Yoga will enable us to discover Vairagya or dispassion. And therefore a relative freedom from the objects, from the dependence upon the objects. And then set the ground for discovering absolute freedom. Absolute freedom is the nature of the self. But before we discover that, it is necessary that we have a mind which enjoys relative freedom from the objects, relative freedom from the non-self. So Karma Yoga enables us to discover that relative freedom. So that is what we call being at home with oneself. Dispassion, Vairagya meaning being at home with myself. At the moment I am not at home with myself. And that's the reason why I need so many distractions. I need so many activities. I need to reach out or run out in order to just keep myself busy. Often in all these escape distractions, there is only an attempt to avoid myself, where I just cannot be with myself. I cannot stand myself. Thus I keep myself busy or engaged. Thus slowly and slowly mind becomes abiding, at home with itself. And therefore also at home with else others. When I am at home with myself, I find that I am at home with the world also. This mind discovers at-homeness, an abidance, a poise. This is what is the first result of Karma Yoga, a relative freedom. And then finally what happens is being said in the verse 53. Moha kalila karma yoga phalam yogam avapsyami idhiched. Arjuna will say, okay, this antahakana suddhi or purification of mind is fine. But I am not merely going to be satisfied by purification of mind. I am not going to be satisfied merely by what we call relative freedom. When will that absolute freedom come? yogam, an abidance in the self. An abidance in the self which is the truth. When will that abidance come? And that is being replied in the verse 53. Shutivi pratipanade, yadas tasidi nischala, samadhava chala buddhi, tada yogam avapsasi. Shutivi buddhi, yada nischala samadhu achalastasid, tada yogam avapsasi. Tada at that time yogam avapsasi. He will attain yoga. Where here Shankaracharya explains the word Yoga is the knowledge. So you will gain an abiding abiding knowledge. Then you will gain an abiding knowledge when te buddhi, when your mind will be nischala sthasati, will become nischala, chalanam, chala means distraction, nischala, when your mind will become free from distraction, achala. So, Nishchala and Achala, these are the two words that Lord Krishna uses here to describe the mind of a yogi or describe the mind of a wise person whose mind abides in the self. So, describing the, the uh, abiding wisdom of a wise person, Lord Krishna says that the mind of such a person is Ach- Nishchala and Achala. So two kinds of obstacles are uh, seen here. One is an obstacle that is called samshaya or various doubts, and another is an obstacle which is what we call viparya or the error. <coughs> Ultimate, actually, there are three obstacles. One is avarana, avarana meaning the ignorance. Second is samshaya, meaning various doubts, and third is viparya, meaning the error, the habitual error of taking this non self body to be the Self. These three obstacles are said to be eliminated by these three things, Shravanam, Mananam and nididhyasaram. By Shravanam meaning listening to the teacher, this ignorance goes. By Mananam reflection upon what I have heard, the various doubts go. And by nididhyasaram, by a constant effort of owning up that knowledge, by alertly always owning up that knowledge, I slowly overcome what we call the habitual error of taking this body to be the Self. the muddhi. So Nischala here means freedom from various doubts which distract the mind and Achala means freedom from the habitual error wherein because of which habitually I keep on identifying with the body when you will become free from these obstacles of doubt as well as error or viparita buddhi. Tadā yogam avapsasi Then you will attain yoga. Yoga is what? Viveka prajñam samadhim prapsasi That viveka pragnā, meaning that wisdom arising out of viveka, the discrimination between the self and the non-self. That time you will attain that abiding wisdom of the nature of discrimination between the self and the non-self. That is what you will gain. An abiding wisdom you will get. says, what is the nature of the mind today? Shruti vipratipannate. At the moment, here, you know, your mind is vipratipannam. Meaning, it is at the moment, vipratipannam, it is tossed about. bewildered, full of doubts and full of various uh, distractions on account of Shruti. Here Shruti also means Veda, the Karmakanda section of the Veda. So when we listen to this Karmakanda, meaning the ritualistic portion of the Veda, then the ritualistic portion describes a number of rituals and also describes the various results to be obtained as a result of performance of these rituals. And therefore the mind gets bewildered; It hears about heavens and it hears about various other siddhis, the powers and various attainments that you can have, as a result of performing different rituals and naturally the mind wants those things. So when you will, your mind will be totally settled with reference to all the means and the ends that the Karmakanda section of the Veda describes. That means your mind will no more be distracted by or no more be uh, disturbed by various things that you can attain in the world. Even when people are studying Vedanta and seeking the knowledge for the attainment of moksha which is the ultimate achievement in life, even then also people have a lot of fascination still with the worldly objects, with powers, various powers which the yogis attain, like the powers to control the mind, powers to uh, read somebody's thoughts, or powers to cure and different kinds of powers you might call spiritual powers can be obtained and there is a lot of fascination for them or various worldly powers in terms of the wealth or other, other things so mind does have a fascination for those things and as long as that fascination is mind continues to get distracted by them whenever it hears about them so when all those distractions will go away meaning the mind will no more be distracted by some external achievement in terms of either material achievement or even some kind of spiritual powers. When you understood the limitations of all of them, (coughs) meaning mind is very clear about the limitations involved in any kind of an achievement, whether achievement is something external or achievement is something internal, that all these achievements are limited. Achievements created as a result of an effort are also going to be finite and that no achievement is going to give me a, a lasting satisfaction. And therefore the mind has a total dispassion towards them. Not an aversion, not an attachment. So dispassion means the freedom from attachment and aversion. Neither am I attached to any achievements, nor do I have any aversion for achievement. If they are there, fine. If they are not there, I am equally at home. This is called the freedom from the sense of achievement. And it's not that easy. More and more we hear about things, more and more minds runs after things. And everybody may have different complexes. Some people may be seeking recognition, somebody may be seeking power, somebody may be seeking wealth, somebody may be seeking comfort. I mean different people seek different things and those things continue to distract their minds. Interestingly enough, many years ago when I was teaching in Bombay, one person comes to me and he was actually a renunciate. And says Swamiji, I want to join this course, which at the time we were conducting in Bombay. Says okay, uh, what what have you been doing so far? Says well, I have studied in Kashi, in Banaras. What have you studied? I have studied all the shastras, all the scriptures. In Banaras, I have studied. I have studied all the Vedanta and scriptures and everything. Said, if you already studied them, then what's the point in joining the course? So now I want to study them in English. So that person had studied them all in Hindi because that's the medium of instruction there in Banaras. So what difference does it make whether you study in Hindi or in English? He says, no, Swami, I want to study the scriptures in English so that I can go to Canada. And then what? Then I can give lectures, you know, and discourses and things like that. And so some kind of fascination is there, you know, for, for the people to go out and, you know, gain some recognition, etc. So it's amazing how this kind of fascination is hard to go from the mind. And if you are alert about the various thoughts and tendencies, trends of the mind, then we will see how every mind has different kinds of, depends upon its own upbringing, depends upon its own complexes about itself, that it, it is, that, that desire of some achievement at the material level seems to remain. Shruti Vipratipanna Never, therefore, when your mind, that is, bewildered or sometimes tossed about and therefore distracted, on account of listening to these various achievements that are possible in the world, you hear about many saints also and sages that how such and such saint has such and such power, you know, and how he could achieve this, how he could, I don't know, uh, read somebody's mind, how he could heal somebody. How some people convert mi- water into milk, you know, and in stuff like that. So all of these kind of things in India you hear a lot of says. And you wonder, you know, and then you also wonder whether you also should do that or not. Anyway, when the mind will become free from fascination for all of this, not because of, because it is impossible to achieve, not because grapes are sour, but because it, it discovers an internal... Uh, freedom and internal happiness and abiding happiness as it discovers and therefore it just becomes free from any kind of distraction. So understand that before our mind abides into the Self, Self or the Atma is subtler than the subtlest. And As it is for a mind to concentrate or on any, any one thing is so difficult. And to ab- for it to concentrate or abide into the Self which is extremely subtle, it is extremely difficult. So slightest of distraction will distract the mind and you will not have what we call an abiding knowledge. So mind will have an abiding knowledge when it absolutely abides, when it becomes absolutely free from any kind of a distraction and the distractions can come because of various fascinations. So when the mind becomes totally free from the fascination as a result of having discovered a lasting happiness with itself yada sthasyati nischala so nishchala viksheva chalana varjitasati free from the turbulence due to various distractions so when it becomes mind gets distracted or becomes turbulent, disturbed so when it becomes free from the various distractions distractions can be of two kinds also one is the mind can be distracted because it has certain false values And secondly it can be distracted because habitually it is restless. So for example if you observe your thinking process you will find mind runs out very often towards objects for which objects or things or beings for which the mind has fascination. It will again and again think of those things. However, naturally mind has a tendency to think or dwell upon things which it likes or sometimes when it dwells upon things it dislikes. So mind has a natural tendency to dwell upon things for which either it has attachment or aversion. So as long as attachments and aversions are there, so long the mind will have a tendency to dwell upon those objects. And second reason why the mind gets distracted is because sometimes it just keeps on wandering for no reason at all. Either is wandering with reason because it is seeking happiness or fulfillment, therefore it goes out. Or sometimes it is just restless by nature and therefore it just cannot remain on centered on one object or one thing for a length of time and therefore it keeps on wandering. So both of these kind of distractions when they are gone, that also can be understood as Nischala and Achala that the distractions created on account of the attachment and aversions when they are not there and the distraction created on account of a habitual nature of the mind to just wander about for no reason it's a meandering thing how the mind and when we are talking on you know how the talks just keep on you know, moving from one topic to the other without our knowing even because there is a natural connection there is some kind of an association with one object to the other object and therefore by that law of association mind runs from one object to the other without any reason. So, if somebody were to record our talks, uh, like 45 minutes we talk, you'll find, we started with a discussion on Vedanta, and the talk went into slowly politics, and then went into sports, and then it went into uh, something else, and it wanders all over the world, and hopefully may come back to Vedanta. Because there is some association with the other with one object, and the other and by the law of association mind like a like a monkey which jumps from one branch to the other the mind keeps on jumping from one object to the other without any reason because of some association so we talk of Vedanta and then we talk of the Veda then we talk of India and then we talk of um, the Indians and then you talk of Indian leaders and then we talk of Indian politics and then you talk of politics in general and then you talk of the American politics and then the then you talk of the President of the United States, then you talk of the Vice President, and you talk about oh, the Chief of Staff who is now perhaps may become the next Vice President, and then you talk of the Gulf War, and like that it goes on. Not that this kind of a meandering is a result of attachment or aversion, it is just habitual meandering, because the mind has some kind of an association, sees association with different objects, and keeps on just jumping from one object to the other. So we have to learn... To make the mind steady in this respect also, that it remains centered on one object. Does not wonder. That's the reason why they recommend Japa. Did you keep repeating, Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya. And so, if the nature of one thought is similar, is the same as another thought. Same as the third thought. And thus we create a habit in the mind. To remain with one thought or be centered on one thought for a given length of time. So this kind of steadiness of the mind also is required. Mind is unsteady and mind is distracted. Mind is distracted because of attachments and aversions. And that will go as a result of viveka or discrimination. When, When the mind discovers that its attachment for an object also is because it does not recognize the true nature of the object or it is an aversion also because also of not understanding the true nature attachments and aversions both are projections of the mind as we will see then slowly it becomes free from that and then its unsteadiness of just meandering, wandering from one place to the other also has to be checked by another alertness and bringing the mind back again and again all of this is talked about in the sixth chapter yato yato nischarvi manas chanchalam astiram atman niva vaśam Lord Krishna says for whatever reason your mind unsteady mind it wanders out you again bring it back from that and center it or focus it upon the self so this process is called nidhyasaram, or what we call meditation and thus for a great length of time, these practices are required. Karma Yoga gives us a mind which is what we call a relatively pure mind, relatively free from attachments and aversion, which mind is abiding and therefore we can apply that, employ that mind in Shravanam on listening to the scriptures. And various doubts are resolved as a result of the reflection reasoning. And then these distractions and wanderings are slowly, slowly removed by what we call Nididhyasanam. The meditation or the attempt of bringing the mind again and again into the focus. As a result of which, when your mind will become completely free from distraction and completely free from unsteadiness, yogam Vāpsasi. So, Samādhu āchalā buddhi, Then the mind becomes completely centered on Samādhi. And Shankaracharya explains Samadhi as Atma. Samadhiade chittam asmini de samadhi. So that it's in which the mind ultimately is centered or focused. So Atma here is called Samadhi. Is, samadhi here means Atma. So when the mind becomes totally centered or abiding onto the self because of freedom from distractions and unsteadiness. Sadha Yogam then here Juna, you will attain what we call yoga, meaning an abiding and abidance in the self you will gain. Thus, let us to summarize this. Let us say that there are three factors which are an obstacle today. In what we call moksha or freedom, freedom is not something to be attained. What we will do is we have to eliminate the obstacles between what I am at the moment and the freedom that I am seeking. Freedom is the very nature of the Self. But there are obstacles. Ignorance is the first obstacle. Doubts, different obstacles. And distractions and unsteadiness of the mind is the third obstacle. It is a process of removing these obstacles. The obstacle in terms of ignorance is removed by by constant exposure to the scriptures. And all of these things have to be done for a length of time. Yoga Shastra talks about dirghakalatvam, Nairantaryam and Adara. Dirghakala means for a long time. Because ignorance has been with us for time beginningless. The mind is habitually identified with the body also from beginningless time. Mind has fascination for the objects and achievements also from beginningless time. So all of these things are so deeply rooted that to remove these obstacles is going to make it require a very, a great perseverance. So a length of time is required, constant application is required, and again, an Aadha meaning, enthusiasm and reverence also is required. A value for this, an enthusiasm for this also is required. And so uh, then when these obstacles are essentially eliminated, then the mind becomes abiding in the Self. This is called Yogam here. Yoga here means abidance of the mind in the Self or the abiding wisdom. Here Juna, then you'll become a Yogi in the ultimate sense. So what Yogi means? two? There are two meanings then. First meaning is Karma Yogi. One who abides in this attitude of Karma Yoga also is called Yogi. And finally, the one who abides in this knowledge is also called Yogi is Jnana Yogi, the Yogi in the Yogi in the sense of knowledge. So, for both of these, Bhagavad Gita uses the word Yogi. Yogi means the one who has the Yoga, or the one who abides in this Yoga. In <coughs> this, Lord Krishna described the Yogi as a person who enjoys Samadhi, meaning who enjoys an abiding knowledge. And this is how, in these verses, the discussion on Karma Yoga is concluded. It's concluded by mention of the end result, namely an abiding knowledge when the mind abides into the abides in the knowledge of the self. In this Lord Krishna concludes his discussion. Then Arjuna asks a question Arjuna labdha samadhi lakshana when Lord Krishna talked about a yogi, meaning a person having this abiding knowledge, then immediately Arjuna wanted to know what, who that person is. So, prasna Bijam. Very often when you make mention of certain things, then it develops a curiosity in the mind of the listener. And this is generally the way of communication. That as you talk, it answers certain present question and raises a new inquiry. And your next statement answers that and creates the ground for the further knowledge. So it's constantly in the student's mind, a desire to know further is generated by the very talk of the teacher. And so also when Lord Krishna mentioned here a yogi, or the one who enjoys that abiding wisdom, then Arjuna immediately wanted to know what is the nature of this yogi. Lakshana Mubhuchaya. Lakshana means characteristics. He wanted to know the characteristics of such a yogi. And with a desire to know that, he asks his question in the verse 54. Sthita Prajnishya Kabhasa, Samadhisthastya Keshava, Sthita Gihkim Prabhasaida, Kimasita Vrajeta Kim. Hey Keshava. Keshava is the name of Lord Krishna. Very often the commentators explain the word Keshava. So Lord Krishna's name was Keshava. Kesha means hair. So Lord Krishna has very, had very beautiful hair. Therefore he was called Keshava. Or Kesha also means ray. It is said in Mahabharata that ray is like the light or the, the, the luster was radiating from Lord Krishna. And therefore also he was called Keshava. But then, in another way also the word Keshava is explained by commentators. They say that this word Keshava is made up of different elements. Kakara, Akara, Isha. So, Kesha is made up of Kakara, A. So, Kakara and A becomes Ka. Add to that Isha becomes Kesha. And add to that becomes Keshava. Now if you look in the dictionary, every letter has a meaning, so letter K has a meaning. K means Brahma, the creator. Kam Brahma, Kam Brahma, so letter K means Brahma, the creator. If you look at the meaning of letter A, it means Vishnu, the preserver. And Isha, Isha means the Lord, meaning Lord Shiva. So Kakara, A, and Isha means what? Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, the creator, sustainer, and destroyer. So the one, Va, means Vapuhu. One who is the very essence of the creator, sustainer, and destroyer is called Keshava. So one who is very substratum, that Paramatma, the supreme being, who is the very essence of the creator, sustainer, and destroyer is called Keshava. Means the the Lord, the great Lord, the, the supreme Lord. So the one who is omniscient, because he is creator, sustainer, and destroyer. So Lord, so Arjuna addresses Lord Krishna as Kereshava. Lord, you are all-knowing, and therefore you know the answer of what I am asking for. He Kereshava. Siddha prajnyasya abhasha, Siddha pragnya. So this is a word again that Arjuna uses for the first time here. Stha, Stha means to stand, to obtain, to abide. And prajna, prajna means wisdom. sthita prajna sthita prajna yasvithah sthita prajna One who's prajna or the wisdom is sthita meaning abiding. So one who has the abiding wisdom is called sthita prajna. What is the nature of wisdom here? brahma ahamasmi param This wisdom or this knowledge that I am Param Brahma or I am limitless. I am, I, I am, I am complete. I am limitless. I am free. I am Brahma. In, in, this is knowledge. The one whose mind abides in this knowledge, in this wisdom, is called sthita prajna, meaning a man of abiding wisdom, wisdom of the nature of the self, <coughs> he is called Stidaprajnaya. So Arjuna wants to know Stidaprajnaya ka Bhasha. Bhasha. Bhasha means to speak. So Bhasha generally means speech. So what is the speech of, of, the, of the man of providing wisdom? That's what it means. So also language. Bhasha also means language. So one may ask, uh, interpret or translate this question as what is the language of the wise man? <coughs> but here, bhasha means bhashanam, speech. So here it means bhashanam means vachanam. Kathamato paraihi bhashade. So in what manner do others describe this wise man? So bhasha here means description. What is the description of a man of avoiding wisdom? Sthita of bhasha. What is the description of the man of abiding wisdom? Samadhistasya. Now this Tadda Pragna or man of abiding wisdom can be twofold. One is Samadhistasya. When he is in Samadhi, when he is in absorption, meaning when he is totally centered on the self. And secondly, when he is functioning in the world. A person can be either with oneself or person can be with the world. So Samadhi sthita pragnasya. When this wise man is in Samadhi, meaning when his mind abides in himself, then what is his description? How is he? Or what is the nature of his wisdom? What is the state of his mind? Or what is the nature of wisdom of a wise man? And then secondly, sthitadhihi kim prabhaseta. So this sthitadhihi, again dhi means buddhi or the knowledge. So sthitadhi, dhi also means knowledge. sthitadhi means the one of having this abiding knowledge. So another word for pragni is sthitadhi, kim prabhaseta. So how does he talk? How people talk about him? Meaning, what is his description? Second question is, how does he talk? Meaning somebody may say, in which language does he talk? It's not the language in which he is talking, but how does he talk? Meaning, how does he respond to different situations? So we always talk. Whenever we respond to different situations, we are talking. Talking is not merely in, in, by, by the words, but talking can be by my different moods or by different reactions or responses. So, I communicate with the world. How does he communicate with the world when he meets with different situations? When favorable and unfavorable or pleasant and unpleasant situations come to this wise man, then how does he talk, meaning how does he respond? So, how does he respond to various situations? When he doesn't know to respond, when he is only with himself, then what is the nature of his mind? Or what is the nature of the knowledge that he has? And then, when various situations present themselves to him, then how does he respond to these different situations? Sthritadihi, Kimprabhasheta, Kimavasita, how does he sit? Vrajayeta Kim, how does he walk? Again, the question is, not in what posture he sits, whether he sits in Padmasana or what kind of a posture, no. How does he sit? Meaning that, when he is with himself, then how does he remain with himself? When he's is not responding to the world, or the world is not uh, responding to him, when there is no exchange of the world, which, when he is with himself, then how does he remain? How does he walk? Again, walking means, so either the situations come to us, or we go into the world also, very often, when you want to work, when you are shopping, when you are talking, when you are working, then you go to the world. So when he goes to the world, he goes to various situations, he contacts various objects and situations, how does he contact? When situations come to him, then how do he respond? First question. And how does he himself approach the situation? So when situations approach him, how do he respond? And also, how does he approach various situations? How does he enjoy his different objects? When uh, food comes to him, how does he respond? When he asks for food, then how does he do that? So both ways, how do they respond? And how does he approach the various situations? And when he is not meeting with any situation, or he is not himself going out in the world, then how does he abide with himself? So these are the various questions that Arjuna asks about a wise man. He wants to know, why, what's the need, what's the reason why Arjuna is asking these questions? The reason is very simple, Arjuna is asking about the characteristics of the natural traits of the wise man. So wise man is the one who is spontaneous, who is spontaneously good or spontaneously wise Spontaneously happy, spontaneously accommodative, spontaneously non-reactive. This is what will be described. So wise man is the one who does not react. Wise man is the one who is always happy. But does he have to make efforts to be happy? Says no one who is spontaneously or effortlessly happy. He does not react with either likes and dislikes or attachment and aversion or with elation or, 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 or sadness or depression. He doesn't get elated nor does he get depressed. Does it mean that he makes an effort not to be elated? Does he make an effort not to be depressed? No. He is effortlessly or spontaneously free from elation and depression. He is spontaneously or effortlessly happy. He is spontaneously or effortlessly under control of himself. So all is, there are no reactions in the mind, the mind is naturally in control. So he is naturally a master of his mind, and therefore master of himself. So these are the characteristics that Lord Krishna is going to describe. When he goes out in the world, he approaches everything without any attachment or aversion, meaning he doesn't brand anything either as good or bad. And therefore his approach to the world is always free from raga and dveshara attachment and aversion. His sense organs, his mind, everything is under his control, meaning they always abide in himself. So all of these characteristics this wise man enjoys spontaneously or effortlessly. And this is what we want to know. What are his natural traits? And in many, several occasions the characteristics of wise men are described in Bhagavad Gita. This is the first occasion. And this occasion will come again and again. In the third chapter also, the occasion comes. Yastvaatma virevasyat Atma turuptas chamana Atman nyevache santoshta ha Tasyakaryam vidyate The Lord Krishna describes a wise man as one who is Atmanatihi, who revels in the self. Atma turuptas chamana Who is totally satisfied with the self. Atman nyevache santoshta So who is totally happy with himself, who is totally satisfied with himself, who is always reveling in the self. Thus, this is how the wise man is described in the third chapter. That person has nothing remain to be done, nothing remains to be done for him, or nothing remains to be accomplished for him. In the fourth chapter, the same wise man will describe as an ideal karma yogi. One who knows the in action in action, and knows action in inaction. action. He becomes totally free from all the desires, all the demands, all the notions, and therefore, even though he is acting constantly, he remains always free from action. Even though acting, he really does not act. <coughs> Fifth chapter also will describe. Sarvakaramani Manasa Naiva So dwelling in this body of the nine gates, city of the nine gates, the body which is like a city of the nine gates, dwelling in that, he remains happily, neither doing anything nor making anyone do anything. Every chapter describes this. And the reason why this is described is so that we can understand the nature of wisdom. After how do you describe wisdom? Wisdom is described by the traits of a wise man. And when we hear this, then they, what are the lakshanas or the natural traits or characteristics of wise men, they become the values for a seeker. Sadhanani Yatna Sadhyatva. All the time in the spiritual literature, what are the natural traits of a person, of, of an accomplished person, they become the values because that is what a seeker attempts to achieve as a result of an effort. In which direction should I make an effort? How should I conduct myself? What are the values that I should observe? <coughs> so, all those means which have to be, which we have to deliberately practice in course of time they become natural or spontaneous. Therefore, always the scriptures give us those values, which when we practice with effort or with deliberation, which in course of time become natural or spontaneous. So values are always given to us, which are natural to us. They ask us to always speak truth, to be non-violent, so this non-violence, truthfulness, comparison, forgiveness, all the various values which are given to us, ultimately we'll find that all these values are nothing but the nature of the self. In fact, we should have been necessarily doing all those things. But we find that we are not doing them right now, that the truthfulness or non-violence is not necessarily natural to me. It's only because of ignorance and all kinds of... Uh, the ego, the ahankara, mamakara, the sense of ego, the sense of possession, the attachments, aversions, fears, all of these which are there in the mind, which has made my behavior in life completely unnatural. So right now, the behavior of a person is totally unnatural, even though we may call it natural. It is natural for a person to run to the world, natural for him to seek enjoyments, but it's unnatural. But those things, even if a wrong thing is practiced for a great length of time, then it becomes, you know, habitually it becomes right. And therefore our mind has developed all these unhealthy patterns of thinking and patterns of responding and patterns of reacting. But then they have become so rooted that, today we think that it is spontaneous, in fact it is impulsive. Very often impulsive behavior is Misunderstood as spontaneous behavior. And so these impulses seem to have become very natural for us. But, uh, but we are told, do not tell a lie. although lying seems to be easier. Don't hurt anybody, even the hurting seems to be easier. Don't steal anything. stealing seems to be easier. only because these wrong traits have been, have been practiced for such a length of time that all those things have become natural. Amanitvam, adambitvam, freedom from pride. Pride is natural today. Adambitvam, freedom from pretentiousness. So pride, I don't have to make an effort to be proud. I find myself to be proud. I don't have to make an effort to be pretentious of showing something which I am not. It is natural. It's not natural. It is in fact only habitual. And so we are given the values Amanitvam, adambitvam, freedom from pride, freedom from pretentiousness, which seems to be so difficult. But when we deliberately practice these values, in course of time, those values become spontaneous because it is the nature of the self. Self by nature is truth. Self by nature is non-violent. Self by nature is, there is no pride in the there. Self by nature is free from pride, pretentiousness, ever the same. And therefore, these values are given to in order, us in order for which I mean, in conformance with the nature of the self. That's the reason why when we practice these values deliberately or with an effort, in course of time, they become spontaneous. So, Arjuna also is highly enthused. He is asking for the description of the wise man, characteristics of the wise man, so that he can also practice them and we can deliberately cultivate them so that ultimately he also becomes a man of abiding wisdom. Therefore, in the 18 verses, which is the last section of Bhagavad Gita, Lord Krishna describes the various characteristics of the wise man. And not only describes the wise man's characteristics, which is sadhira or something to achieve, but also describes in many verses what is sadhana, what is the various means. To, for achievement, what are the value, various values which we should implement or for practice in order to attain that ultimate goal which is the abiding wisdom? And that discussion begins from verse 55. <coughs> okay, we'll see that from tomorrow. Oh, Purana and pūrṇam idam pūrṇak pūrṇam pūrṇasya pūrṇamādarya pūrṇameva Om ūm śānteshaṁ śāntirśāntehīve śaṅkaram śaṅkarvācāryam krēśavam vādaramēṇa bhagavanta upunah kuraha ishvaro gururatma vipi murti bheda vibhagine me virumavad vyaptabihara lakshana murti namaha om gurushren hari om shri gurubhyo namaha hari om